Hello, my name is Phil Lawler. I'm senior fellow at the Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture at Thomas More College, and I welcome you to my Book of the Month Club. Every month, I arrange to have a conversation with the author of a recently published book that I've found particularly interesting, something that offers a provocative perspective on one or more of the topics that are of particular interest to our center. Those topics are education in the liberal arts, the defense and promotion of marriage and family life, active Christian involvement in civic life, the arts, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. I hope these podcasts will stimulate further conversations as well as interest in our center. If you enjoy what you hear today, please check back to the website of the Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture and take a look at some of our other conversations in this Book of the Month series, as well as other offerings from our center. Please also sign up for regular email notices about coming events, both online presentations and live events. Finally, if you're able, please support our work by making a contribution to the work of the center. You'll find a handy form on our website as well. All contributions are appreciated and all are tax deductible. Now on to this month's conversation. Today I have with me uh, Father John Gavin, who is a professor of religious studies at Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts. And his new book is entitled Mysteries of the Lord's Prayer, Wisdom from the Early Church. Let me open the conversation by asking why look for the wisdom of the, open of the early church particularly on such a familiar prayer? Sure. Well, when we look back at the early church, my particular area of study, of course, is uh, the church fathers. So that's the people that we're talking about. And we're more or less speaking about the great theologians, pastors, saints, and many martyrs of the first six to seven centuries of the church. Uh, those who were writing especially in Latin, Greek, but also uh, we would include Syriac, uh, Coptic, and other languages which these texts are preserved. But the reason I, we would look back at these theologians and these pastors uh, and preachers in particular would be that in this formative period of the church, we can say, uh, first of all, that they were doing what we would call perhaps today theology, though they wouldn't necessarily call it that, but uh, theology uh, on their knees. That is, when they are talking about particular problems or questions that are being debated in the church, it's always coming from their prayer. Uh, they don't see this, they're not uh, doing this for tenure or to get publications or anything like that, but rather uh, they are truly praying, but also they're applying tremendous resources of their intellect and uh, the philosophical, uh, cultural tools that were available to them in that time. So uh, they're trying to convey the truths of the faith, uh, the uh, the joy that they have in the risen Lord uh, to the world, to those who believe, but also to those who question. And then the other thing I would stress about them is that everything that they write or speak on or contemplate uh, emerges from the scriptures. 
they are first and foremost uh, speaking and commenting on the scriptures, on, uh, on God's word. So again, it's not, uh, yes, there's speculation involved. And as I said, they used the particular philosophical tools of their age. But first and foremost, they want to enter into God's word, uh, the, the, the inspiration of the spirit, and uh, to facilitate that encounter of the entire church with Christ. Whenever I read the early church fathers, which is not as often as I should, what strikes me is the immediacy of their message. It's, mm. it's very uncomplicated. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's simple in, in the good sense, I mean, profound, but simple. And uh, I was struck by a quotation you have from Romano Guardini when he says, mm. at a time when we feel so many things shaken to their foundation, we have every reason to grope our way back to the very core of the Christian realities mm -hmm wherein the undisturbed omnipotence of the redemption reigns. The very core of the Christian realities is what's at issue here, isn't it? That, no, very true, yeah. I, I think that what you, when the church finds itself in a time of crisis, it turns to its saints and the resources that the Holy Spirit has given it uh, in the formation of the tradition. And right. so going back to the words of the fathers, uh, it's to go back to the really the, the font of the church's uh, formation under the Holy Spirit in these centuries. Of course, we're also talking about the period of the great ecumenical councils uh, and the great debates that surrounded that. Also, I like to go back to the church fathers as well, especially in this time where we have so many uh, debates and, and uh, very often lack of clarity. Uh, it's a good reminder to ourselves that uh, the church has faced crises throughout its history. And mm -hmm. if we look at the church fathers, uh, they're all involved in debates and crises of their time and, and in a variety of ways. And yet the Holy Spirit uh, works through the church and, uh, and well, the, the bark is still floating. Right? It is. And it, another way in which I read uh, that quote from Gardini was when he talks about when he speaks of the very core of the Christian realities, mm. there aren't many things closer to the core of the reality of Christian life than the Lord's Prayer. Mm -hmm. so, so there's an overlap here in, in, in what you're doing. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think uh, my interest in what the fathers had to say about the Lord's Prayer uh, began really when I uh, entered religious life when I uh, started the Jesuit novitiate. Uh, that's when I really began to pray the entirety of the uh, of the office, liturgy of the hours, for the uh, first time fully as a novice. And in the office of readings, uh, in the cycle, a uh, longer cycle of readings that we read uh, over the course of the year, uh, we have uh, Cyprian's commentary on the Lord's Prayer, Saint Cyprian of Carthage, and we also have uh, Augustine's letter to Proba, the portion on the Lord's Prayer. So, uh, and I was fascinated when I, I uh, encountered them, they opened up the prayer in a way for me that I, uh, I had never, never encountered before. Uh, in some ways I say that the prayer became strange to me uh, when they began to reveal all the, the depths and problems within it. Then as I can later began to study the church fathers, I discovered that many of them 
had written commentaries on the Lord's Prayer, some dedicated commentaries, others homilies, others within other works. And all of them found within it what I think St. Cyprian summarizes very well by calling it a compendium of the church's teachings. Uh, maybe it was a compendium of the entire gospel within those words that uh, Jesus gives us. Well, I have to say that reading this book is bound to deepen one's appreciation of the Lord's Prayer because there's so much wisdom in here um, that you're taking from the church fathers. But it, it does make it strange. It, mm-hmm. it opens new horizons in, in what can be all too familiar. Yes, and, I, and I, that's what I really hope this, uh, this book would do. I mean, we, as, as we know, we, we pray the Lord's Prayer often, the Our Father, and uh, whether it's in uh, the context of the, of the mass or the rosary or, or our personal prayer, whatever it may be. And yes, it, it becomes familiar and maybe even rote. And we need the fathers to really open us up to the well, really radical nature and the depths of, of the prayer before us. Right. Let me say about this book, this is just a personal observation, but it, I mean it. I have never been so intrigued by the cover of it. <laughs> uh, it's a fascinating thing. And unfortunately, it's a visual thing. I'm not sure mm. that we can explain it uh, in here. Uh, maybe we should just tell people, uh, unless you can take a shot at explaining <laughs> it in words, tell people get the book or at least take a look at the book because it's an absolutely fascinating cover. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's known as the, the Rotasator Square and it's a two-dimensional palindrome. So it can be read in different directions, consists of five words and you can read it uh, up and down and sideways. Uh, it, it's really a, cle- and of course in Latin, it's a remarkably clever puzzle, but uh, it's also, uh, and I illustrate this in the book, it's also an anagram that is, it can be unscrambled to say pater noster and pater noster, uh, and then alpha omega, alpha omega, and it forms the image of the cross. Uh, so I, I, I talk in there about how the earliest version of this square that we have comes from Pompeii, uh, which means it dates, well, the Pompeii was destroyed in, in 79 AD. So it's, uh, it's quite old. And uh, I think it later came to be used in a way like ichthus would have been used, perhaps. Uh, that is uh, the word for fish uh, that would then be uh, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, uh, that kind of uh, symbol that Christians could recognize. So, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, you have to, but you have to see it. It's hard for a You do have to see it. And I I don't think you mentioned that in the anagram version, it Mm. says paternoster up vertically and horizontally and leaves, you're left with an A and an O as an alpha Mm. and omega, suggestive that the paternoster is as you say, the compendium of Christian faith. Yes, exactly. And uh, so I build the book around a bit in a way that that structure of the Pater Noster and the cross, but also between the Alpha and Omega, the formation between the Alpha and Omega. So 
uh, yes, it's it's a it's a wonderful image. And if uh, there's not any debates about it, but in a way, uh, one could argue that it's the oldest commentary on the Our Father. In a way, when you have that uh, pictogram and that anagram, uh, it becomes that. Well, the anagram, the pictogram appears to be earlier, right? The, the Paternoster is in the form of a cross. Uh, yes, but I'm saying that the Rota Satoa Square yes. seems to predate Christian faith. Well, yes, I mean, there's debates about that, of course. It's 79 AD, uh, again, it, it's unlikely that it came from a Christian source. But on the other hand, uh, you know, some argue that there's a possibility. I mean, what you would have to argue is that there were Latin-speaking Christians already in that area by 79 AD. Which is certainly possible. It's possible, it's absolutely possible. Uh, you know, others would argue, well, no, that's too early and there are some other theories about it. Whatever the case, it certainly became adopted by Christians. We find it in churches uh, and other Christian sites. Okay. I'd like to just take a few things from the book that struck me as a way of giving people who, who listen to this podcast a little bit of a taste of what they would get in the book if they're fortunate enough to possess it. Mm -hmm. um, and so these are just, uh, I'm cherry picking here, but mm -hmm. uh, for instance, um, heaven and heavens, mm. you stress the fact that there are different translations and there are different approaches to whether it's a singular or a plural, heaven and heavens in the Lord's Prayer. Right. Uh, well, a couple of things to note is that it were, there are two versions, of course, of the Lord's Prayer, right? So we have uh, one version in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, another version in Luke, chapter 11, shorter version. It's the version in Matthew uh, where, in fact, we find reference to heaven twice, right? And so we get uh, our Father who are in the, and this doesn't come through, obviously, even the most common English translation. It says, our Father who are in the heavens, plural, or a noise. And then we have the couplet of on earth as it is in heaven. And there, heaven is in the singular. Now, just looking at the scriptural text uh, in Matthew, uh, we find a couple of general patterns with these words. I mean, the first would be that heavens, plural, generally refers to the transcendence of God, right? Uh, that is, God is outside of what we understand as a created order, Right. Whereas uh, earth and heaven designate the created realm. Right. So we're talking about the firmament and then, of course, what comes above the stars, which you uh, can the see angels that you can see. Yes. And so it designates the totality of creation, that couplet, uh, mm -hmm. earth and heaven. So in a way, it forms a unit within the prayer, uh, moving from the father in the heavens and then incorporating and uh, the totality of creation in earth and heaven. Now, some of the fathers note this, but uh, and they will comment on it, but 
again, it depends, especially in the Latin, uh, whether or not they are even aware that you have a plural heavens in uh, the first reference. But what's interesting is they're particularly concerned about uh, when we look at our father who are in heaven or in the heavens, uh, avoiding anthropomorphisms, that is, uh, applying human concepts or created concepts to God and putting God somewhere up there in outer space, right? Somewhere with the, the stars or uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the sun or what have you. Uh, they are very intent on teaching that God is not simply another created object in the cosmos, right? Confined by anything. Uh, they are not denying the omnipresence of God, but at the same time, uh, they want the, uh, they want their flock to be fully aware that God is not one that they can simply grasp as one would uh, a book, a tree, or any other object. So what they then move to here, as I note, and what I find striking is the Father in the heavens uh, this becomes the object of our pilgrimage, this desire to be, in a sense, metaphorically, where the Father is, that is, with the Father, in the Father's house, as our Lord tells us, uh, that this image of the heavens, though we are not to imagine it as a physical place, uh, nonetheless, is one that we are called to be present and share in, in God's life. So they have various ways of approaching that. You know, the most striking, provocative, I almost want to say revolutionary thing about the Lord's Prayer is the first mm. two words, I think. If you look at mm. it from any but a, a Christian perspective, mm. to refer to the Lord as, to, to the Almighty, as yes. our Father, would be viewed as blasphemous by other mm -hmm. faiths. Uh, mm -hmm. And our Father, not just my Father, uh, your mm. Father, uh, implies a corporate right. approach. Uh, and that's, uh, well, you spend a good deal of time in this book exploring that, the, the conflict between seeing God as uh, infinitely removed mm -hmm. and at the same time as our father uh, by his own will, uh, obviously not by any doing of ours mm -hmm. is an enormously striking opening. No, and the, the fathers want us to know what a tremendous gift that is, uh, but also at the same time, uh, the kind of, uh, shall we say, task or, or responsibility it even involves, right? I mean, on the one hand, it's this tremendous gift, right? Uh, it's interesting. That's the only place in the scriptures where we see our father. Uh, Jesus will speak of my father, that unique relationship that he has with the father by nature. And then he will speak of your father speaking to us. That is this gift that we receive by adoption uh, to share in the divine life, to call God father uh, to uh, and, and to be elevated to that life by divine gift of grace. But at the same time, what I, I I'm really struck by how they make the point in a way I, I, I summarize it by like father, like son. Um, if, if we're going to claim or say God is father, 
then, uh, well, we want to reflect well on that, right? In the way that we live, uh, because we, if we call God Father, whenever we are in the state of sin, we are in a way blasphemously attributing sin to the Father, right? Because we're claiming to be uh, be the Father's children, and so. We have to be cognizant always, not only of what a tremendous gift that is, but also uh, it's it's a call to live out fully uh, that adoption that we receive in Christ in our baptism, uh, that we are preaching the truth of God as our Father in uh, how we live out our Christian faith. Another uh, passage that often is con- commented upon um, is thy kingdom come. Mm. And is it St. Augustine who sort of points out that uh, his kingdom will come, whether we pray for it or not? <laughs> right, right. So what is it that we're asking for here? You mentioned, page 71, that there is a martial spirit in the Father's approach to the kingdom. The petition calls one to spiritual combat. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. What we see many times when the fathers talk about this image of the kingdom, which, of course, Jesus preaches often, uh, they recognize that, right, nothing's going to stop God's kingdom. We're not going to get in the way of that. But on the other hand, uh, we have to recognize that we are, uh, by our uh, misuse of our freedom, right, uh, our uh, fall into sin. We find ourselves in a way in occupied territory, and that means both uh, within ourselves, uh, in the way that we let sin so often occupy our hearts, uh, but also the world. Uh, we know the presence of sin. We know the presence of Satan in the world, and so the coming of the kingdom involves uh, involves combat. Uh, I mean, the victory has been won. They're very clear on that by by Christ. And yet uh, there still is this battle that takes place. And so, uh, for instance, we hear uh, in one passage, again, we're speaking of Augustine. I mean, by this sweet word, we obviously offer God this prayer. Uh, Let the opposing battlefront be broken and the hostile phalanx be destroyed. Bring to an end the war of the flesh against the spirit and let the body no longer harbor the enemy of the soul. Uh, it's a it's a uh, it's a battle cry that they're offering us here in the coming of the kingdom. This one, uh, let me uh, pick out one more passage. Thy will be done. There is an echo there of our Lord's words mm. in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, and you also spend some time reflecting on that. Yes, uh, especially the the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane became very important during what we would call the Monophylite controversy uh, that emerges in the 6th century uh, involving whether or not uh, Christ had a divine and human will or simply a divine will. And uh, it's a very complicated controversy, suffice to say, that uh, the church... uh, came down on, obviously, our Lord has both a divine and human will. Otherwise, uh, there is not an authentic humanity, right? But what it also, by referring back to that passage, many of the fathers in 
within the Lord's Prayer is to uh, really draw us to the fact that uh, our Lord has in his uh, free gift of himself, free offering of himself on the cross, uh, restored the freedom of our human will to conform itself to the divine will, uh, to unite ourselves freely to God through the power of grace. And so uh, really that uh, the prayer uh, calls us to enter into the, the passion of the Lord and to offer ourselves with him freely on the cross, uh, that freedom as self-gift in union with the sacrifice that our Lord makes uh, that liberates us from the power of sin and death. I have to say that this book, I think, is very valuable because uh, it takes a prayer that can become rote, can become stale, and fills my mind anyway with new thoughts and new insights about that prayer and new inspiration to make the prayer uh, more meaningful and more fervent. I think this is a really <laughs> useful book and I recommend it strongly to anybody who's listening or will be listening. Uh, it is available from Catholic University Press and online, wherever you go online to get books. Um, the title again, Mysteries of the Lord's Prayer, the author, Father John Gavin. Uh, thank you for writing the book. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Hi, my name is Dominic Casella, and you've been listening to Phil Lawler's Book of the Month Club at the Thomas More College of Liberal Arts Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture. If you're interested in learning more about the center or getting other uh, more of our content that we've been producing, videos, podcasts, articles, visit restorationchristianculture.org. If you haven't already, please consider becoming a monthly donor. Our good work would not be possible without your support. Five, ten, twenty dollars, uh, it goes a long way here for our little operation. God bless and take care. Thank you so much.